And I want to encourage you as we get ready uh, to get into the Word today to turn to John chapter 11 as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. So just as a reminder, it's been a few weeks. We had a couple special Sundays back to back. Been a few weeks since we were in the text of John. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through a long series of John's Gospel. And if you're interested at all, you can find back lessons both on our YouTube channel uh, and on our podcast. And you can uh, find access to those easily through our website. For everybody who's been a part of the series from the beginning, this is where we're at. In John chapter 11, we arrived at the final of the signs that John records for us in Jesus' earthly ministry. So there are seven of these signs as John records them. And as he points out, there's a lot of other things Jesus did. It's these that he focuses on to tell the story he wants to tell. These signs begin in the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2 where Jesus famously turns the water to wine, and then they end in John chapter 11 with what we talked about a few weeks ago when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so it's that event that we got done talking about in the text of John chapter 11 a few weeks ago, and that, that climax is that event with Jesus doing this. It says, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus come out. And as his sister had already pointed out, he'd been in the grave several days, so much that she was worried about an odor. But Jesus, nonetheless, calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And that's where we ended in our text a few weeks ago. What's remarkable, I think, about the way John tells this story is that after this story reaches its conclusion here in this verse, John doesn't say anything about the way that Lazarus reacts to this whole thing. Wouldn't it be interesting to know? I'd, I'd love to read like a short synopsis from Lazarus himself. What it was like to have been raised from the dead and to walk out of the grave with those clothes still on him, right? But we don't learn anything about Lazarus' perspective here. What we do learn about is the perspective of the people that witnessed this event, and so where we're picking up here in John chapter 11 is in verse 45, where John tells us this. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so as John points out several times throughout his gospel, the things Jesus did have had a way of kind of bifurcating people. It, it, it sent them in one direction or another, and you're left with two groups of people as a result of any of these works Jesus did. They are those who believed and those who didn't. And so there are some here who come to even further belief in Jesus because of what they saw him do with Lazarus, and yet there's others who in their disbelief or their unbelief decide instead to go tattletale on him. We got to go tell the authorities what he did, and they just had not come to belief yet. It reminds me of, John, of uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is preparing the 12, the apostles, to go out on their own for the first time. He's trying to get them to understand that they would face opposition because of their affiliation with him. And in the context of that passage, one of the things he tells them is this. He says, do not suppose that I came to bring peace to the earth. Well, wait a minute, I thought you were prince of peace. What does that mean exactly? It means exactly what John is pointing out here, is that whenever you align yourself with Jesus, you automatically set yourself in opposition to the world. And so he says, I did not come to bring peace 
to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Is Jesus saying, go pick a fight with your family on my behalf? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, because you have aligned yourself with me, you are going to be at odds with those who have not. Even among your own family, you will face opposition because of your affiliation with me. And that's what we see here. At the end of, of Jesus' public signs, as John records them for us, culminating with even his ability to raise someone from the dead, there are those who are all in. They believe in who he is, and there are those who think he has to be stopped believers and non-believers, and they're going to naturally find themselves in opposition with one another. You know what that's like. You know what that's like in your personal walk, in your discipleship. You are in opposition to the world around you, not because you have decided to act in aggression towards the world, but because the world has set itself in opposition to Jesus. And so automatically, this is the way the world is divided. So this is what happens next. In verse 47, some of them go and tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees go in turn and tell the Jewish authorities. It says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Well, what is the Sanhedrin exactly? Here's a, an Italian rendition of what they thought the Sanhedrin might have looked like. But in a nutshell, the Sanhedrin was the supreme religious body and the highest authority of Jewish law. They did not have full autonomy because, remember, at this point in time, they still answered to the Romans. But in regard to Jewish law and Jewish daily life and application of Jewish law, this was the highest authority in the land. And so the decisions that they make are authoritative. And the reason it's important to note that is because of this. In just one chapter, Jesus the opposition to Jesus' ministry goes from really what's a, a heat-of-the-moment kind of mob mentality. If you go back to John chapter 10 and verse 31, they're mad at Jesus, and so do you remember what they did? They picked up stones to do what? To stone him. That wasn't premeditated. They just got mad in the heat of the moment, and now you've got this angry mob that's trying to work against Jesus. One chapter later, it goes from that to now this, an organized and very authorized effort to stop him at all costs. The highest authority within Judaism is now set themselves against Jesus in a very official way. This is what they say as they gather together. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, what is the danger in that? Listen to what they say next. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They were afraid to lose what little autonomy they had left. And I'm sure at this point in history, not too far removed from the Maccabean revolt, they're looking back at the events that created that circumstance and they're thinking, we don't want to go down that road again. We don't want to be at war with anyone. We don't want to have to fight for our freedom. Let's just preserve what we have. So the thing to note here is that these men that made up the Sanhedrin, they are not motivated by a desire to arrive at truth. That's not their motivation here. They're not calling themselves together to say, okay, we need to figure out, is this man who he claims to be? That's not their concern. Their concern is what would happen if they allowed this Jesus movement to continue to grow 
And they allowed this messianic fervor around him to go unchecked. What's going to happen as a result of that? That's what they're concerned about. They're not motivated by truth. They're motivated by what? Fear. They're afraid of what Rome might do if they don't put a stop to Jesus' movement in ministry. And so that's exactly what they decide to do. And again, just note how quickly things have changed. Back in the previous chapter in verse 33, as they pick up those stones because they're mad at him, they accuse him of blasphemy. But in one chapter, he's gone from a blasphemer to a serious threat to the very existence of the entire nation of Israel itself. It's not stop this man, he's blaspheming. It's stop this man because the future of our nation is at stake. Isn't it interesting how quickly the sentiment against Jesus builds in this moment. And then this happens. In verses 49 and 50, Caiaphas, who was serving at high priest this year, spoke up and he says this, You know nothing at all. Sounds like a kind and gentle man, doesn't he? You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, there's an easy solution to this, guys. If we're worried about what he might do to the future of our nation, then what do we do? We put him to death in order to preserve the nation. we got to kill him in order to save the nation. His death will preserve the future of our nation. Now, what's interesting about this is what John says next. John says, he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own, but as high priest. That year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. This is John's commentary here. In other words, Caiaphas is saying what he believes to be true, which is that Jesus has to die so that we all can be saved. What he doesn't understand is that this is also the will of God at work. And that he's communicating something about the nature and the heart and the plan of the Father. He doesn't know what that is. He doesn't understand it. But what he's saying is true. Was Jesus going to die in order to save the Jewish nation? It's exactly what he was going to do. Just not in the way that Caiaphas understood it to be true. And so John points that out for us. I'm reminded here of this. There are, there is a field in theology that's called atonement theology. uh, Atonement theory. How do we put into words... What Jesus did on the cross, what he accomplished on the cross, and why he had to die on the cross to begin with. How exactly do we articulate that in a way that helps people understand the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross? And so within that field of study, there's several theories that people have put forth. But by far, the most well-known, the most popular, and the most influential is what we call the substitutionary theory of atonement which is that Jesus died in our place. He took our place on that cross. And that's exactly what Caiaphas is actually articulating here. Again, he's not in alignment with the will of God here. He's just saying, because God is at work through his words, what God is going to accomplish through Jesus on the cross. That Jesus will die on our behalf. Do you remember how Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 53? In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, in that context we read this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, 
yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Why did he die on the cross? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is at the heart of how we understand the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 is one of those favorites that I think a lot of us have. A lot of times we'll use it as we prepare ourselves for the partaking of the Lord's Supper to think on not just what Jesus did, but why he did it. In Acts chapter 8, as Philip is sent to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch, who's returning from Jerusalem back to his home country, he finds him reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And what passage is he reading from? It's this passage right here. And you remember the question that Philip asked him. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And as Josh pointed out in his announcements this morning, it's easy to read scripture. It's hard to what? Interpret it, right? And so what was his response? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And beginning with that passage, he preached Jesus to him. I get a little jealous every time I read that because I think back on all the studies I've had with people. I wish every one of them started by me finding someone randomly reading from Isaiah 53 and asking me who it was about. Perfect setup, right? But it says, beginning with that passage, he preached Jesus to him. But here's another place where it's used in Scripture. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in context here, Peter is talking about suffering and how we connect with Jesus when we suffer for righteousness' sake. But he's leaning into the words of Isaiah chapter 53 and applying them to Jesus the same way that Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. This is what he says, and I want you to hear the words of Isaiah 53 as, as Peter writes here. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, in helping those early Christians wrap their minds around what it was that Jesus accomplished on the cross for our behalf, leans into Isaiah 53 and says, this is what he did. He took our place on the cross so that the punishment we deserve, he took on in the flesh so that we might be justified by what he endured on the cross. That's substitutionary atonement in a nutshell, and it's exactly what Caiaphas is talking about, even though he doesn't know that's what he's talking about. And I just think it's awesome. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just die so that we might have eternal life. He died so that we might have eternal life. What do I mean by that? It's like we've talked about before. The way we frame eternity sometimes is as if it doesn't start until we die and are raised again. But it begins now. Life in Christ begins now. And eternal life is meant to be enjoyed now. 
that we can enjoy the benefits of being in Christ now while still in the flesh. Yes, we look for our resurrection bodies and for what comes after. We hope for all of that, obviously. But we're meant to, to be able to celebrate life here and now. And so what did Jesus come to do? Well, not only was his death substitutionary, but his death was meant to unite his disciples. Go back again to this last thing Peter says, referring back to Isaiah 53. You all, like sheep, had done what? Gone astray. Think back to chapter 10. What's that whole chapter about? Jesus is what? The model shepherd, right? He's going to hunt down his sheep and find them and bring them home. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That's what Peter's talking about. For you like sheep had gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, exactly who were the sheep that had gone astray? Israel, obviously, but beyond Israel. Oops. And not only for that nation. This is what John says in commenting on Caiaphas' words. Jesus died to unite and preserve the nation of Israel, but not just for that nation, he says but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Jesus' death was unifying, and it did something that we cannot do on our own, but more about that in just a moment. Again, think back to chapter 10. In the context of Jesus talking about him being the model shepherd, he says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this pen or of this Fold, some translations say. Talking about sheep outside of the nation of Israel. I must bring them also, he says. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. That's exactly what happened. In Romans chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul says this. Or actually, he asked this question. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles, too? Sometimes I think we fail to grasp how revolutionary a statement like that was. And Paul could only ask that question because of what Christ had accomplished. Before Christ was on that cross, people are going to be confounded by this question. Yes, of Gentiles, too. He says, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, those in the nation of Israel, by faith, and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Now, Paul has a lot to say about that in other places in Romans, and especially in Galatians, but this is what he's getting across here. This is exactly what Jesus did through his death on the cross. He brought us all together, which is what John is saying. As he's looking forward to what Christ would do when he died, he would not just bring us back to God, he would bring us all together. But now in Christ... Paul says in Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, if you would. I want to show you something. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to elaborate it on, on it a lot for time's sake, but if you would, please note this and spend some time in this passage this week and think about what Paul writes here. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, he writes, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is why he died, not just to bring us back to God, but to bring us all together, to unite us in a way that humans simply cannot be united apart from the redeeming work of Christ. And don't miss that point in what Paul is saying here. This is entirely the work of Christ. And the reason that's important is because sometimes I think we, we look at ourselves in the modern church and we get a little too proud of what we've done. And we say, look at all the barriers we've broken down. Look at all of the different kinds of folks that are in this auditorium this morning. And it is a beautiful thing. How many different ethnic backgrounds are represented here? How many different geographical locations are represented here? How many languages are represented here? How many different cultural backgrounds are represented here? But that's not our doing, folks. We can get proud of that and say, look at what we've done. Look at all the barriers we've knocked down. But in reality... If it weren't for the redeeming work of Christ, none of that would be possible. Because we are just still people who like to do what? Build walls as fast as anybody can tear them down, right? You tear one wall down, we build up another one. You find a reason for two groups of people to come together, we'll find a reason to divide them yet again. That's what we do. It's what we've always done throughout history. Look at the hostility that exists in our world today. Because people cannot find a way to come together. We are not one in Christ because we're so awesome that we finally figured out what no one else can. We are one in Christ because he tore that wall down. And we don't make unity. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is that we preserve the bond of unity in the spirit of peace. He has given us a gift, and that gift is all of us together in a way that we wouldn't be otherwise. But this is something they had not experienced yet. And John, in retrospect, before it even happens, looks at the death of Jesus, and he says, you know what, it's, the high priest was right. He did die for the nation of Israel, to bring God's scattered children back, but not just the children of Israel, all of God's scattered children, to make all of those nations one. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Revelation chapter 4, John is given a view into the throne room of heaven, where all of the heavenly hosts are worshiping the throne with God seated on the throne. And then chapter 5 begins, and this scroll is brought out. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one is found worthy until the Lion of Judah is brought out. And the Lion of Judah appears like a lamb 
that was slain. And all of a sudden, all the praise that was directed at God the Father is now directed at Jesus the Son. It's a remarkable scene as John describes it in Revelation chapter 5. And as that heavenly host begins to worship and sing a new song directed at Jesus, the lamb that was slain, part of what they say is this. This is the song. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And aren't you grateful that that's what he's done for us today? Romans chapter 11, one of the heaviest chapters in Scripture. Don't ask me to explain all of it. I'm still sorting it out. But in the context of that, as Paul's dealing with a church made up of Jews and Gentiles still trying to sort all of this out, he reminds the Gentiles specifically of this. He says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. In other words, this is the illustration he uses. If you've got this tree, and this is Israel, God made his covenant with Israel. He made all the promises to Israel. But what was the promise made to Abraham from the beginning? That through him, what? All the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? But they are the root. And he says, you Gentiles were grafted in to this tree. You know the grafting process. You take a branch from this tree and you do what? You graft it into this tree. You're not part of a natural system of branches that's growing here. You've been grafted in. So you're now part of that tree. But this is what Paul's admonition to the Gentiles is. He says, even though that's all true, he says, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. What John is not saying is that God replaced Israel with Gentiles. That is not what he's saying here, and it's important that we understand that. God did not and has not and will not turn his back on ethnic Israel, but his love is not limited by ethnic boundaries. It never has been, and it never will be. This is what we learn about our God from what John is saying about Caiaphas' words here. And I want you to think about this this morning. Jesus died for the Jews who handed him over to be killed. But he also died for the Gentiles, the Romans, who nailed him to the cross. That's the God that we serve. A God who would die for both Jew and Gentile. Listen to Romans chapter 5. If you want to turn over there with me. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first part. That's the atoning work of Jesus, right? That's the substitutionary atonement. That's where he took our place on the cross, and by his stripes we are healed. He brings us back to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our own sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died. For whom? For the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Whether Jew or Gentile, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so here's the question I'd like you to think about this morning in reflecting on this passage. How do we respond to a God whose love for mankind is so great that he would sacrifice his son in order to save his enemies? That's the God we serve. How could we possibly respond to that? Well, here's just one answer. 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18, Paul again or excuse me, Peter, again, is referencing the atoning work of Jesus. And this is what he says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or another way to put that is the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous. He took our place to do what? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then Peter offers a little commentary on that reality. This is what he says. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It is not in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. How do we respond to the redeeming work of Jesus? This is step one, and if you haven't taken this step yet this morning, this is why I want you to think about this passage. Step one, you have to be baptized into Christ. Put him on in baptism. Just like the waters at the flood saved the righteous, not the way we usually think about it, but the waters of the flood saved Noah and his family. They preserved the righteous. So the waters of baptism join us to Christ, his death, and his resurrection so that we are saved by the redeeming work of Jesus. If you have not yet put Christ on this morning, this is God asking you to take that step. Are you ready to put him on yet this morning? The invitation is always open. Would you think about it? carefully this morning. And as we bring the lesson to a close, just a few more verses in this passage, back in John 11. Therefore, as a result of all this, they've got this plan. This, the plot is put in motion. They've determined what they're going to do. He must die for the people. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... This is the third Passover that John records 
in his gospel. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. We'll talk more about that next week. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And this is what's going on among the people as they prepare for the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And this sets up for us the drama that unfolds in the second half of John's gospel. The other thing I want to invite you to do this morning is to think about the cross. How do we respond to the redeeming work of Jesus? The fact that he brings us back to God and the fact that he brought us all together. Well, we get to celebrate that every first day of the week when we gather together for communion. We get to look back at the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. We get to celebrate the fact that we are one in him because of him. But we also get to look forward, don't we? In celebration, in anticipation, in hope that he will return one day to take us home forever. And we celebrate all of that when we take communion together. And so we're going to sing one more song together. I invite you to stand as we do that. Prepare your hearts for the communion. But also, think about ways that we might be able to serve you. And especially if there's anyone here this morning that's ready to put Christ on in baptism that has not yet. The invitation is open. I'd love for you to come forward and let us know how we can serve you. Let's do that while we stand and we sing together. Lord, the light of your love is shining In the midst of the darkness shining Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us Set us free by the truth you now bring us Shine on me Shine on me Shine, Jesus, shine Fill this land Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. Lord, I come to your awesome presence, from the shadows into your radiance. By the blood I may enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. Shine on me. Shine on me, shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send.